You are on trend with the Alumni Trending Podcast. My name is Paul Clifford, and throughout my career in higher education, my mission has been to connect alumni to what they love most about their alma mater and to activate them in ways that support the aspirations of the institutions I have served. As advancement professionals, we are leading a movement, a mobilization of alumni in support of education for a lifetime. On this podcast, you will hear the voices leading our profession, advancing our institutions, and keeping higher education strong around the world. You are going to learn and be inspired by the passion and purpose driving these advancement professionals right here on Alumni Trending. What's up, trendsetters? Welcome to the Alumni Trending Podcast. I'm Paul Clifford, your host, and I'm excited about today's guest. Our trend lines are going to be talking about the social justice movement going on in our country and its impact on higher education and advancement. We're going to talk about branding and marketing in a conversation with Tom Bull, the former executive director for the Portland State University Alumni Association. Before I bring Tom on, I'm going to brag about him a little bit. But Tom was the executive director of the Portland State Alumni Association, serving more than 185,000 alumni from 2011 until January of 2020. He was responsible for overseeing and managing all alumni association activities and communications, including serving as a member of the foundation's executive team for alumni engagement, advocacy, and communications, while also representing uh, continuing interests and affinities of graduates at the university. Tom is a stalwart in advancement, having worked in the field since 1995, serving in leadership roles at Northwestern, Loyola of Chicago, the Loyola University, uh, Loyola of Chicago, DePaul University, Bastyr University. He has a strong belief in supporting communities activities that include service to his alma mater, alumni in various volunteer roles. He serves on professional boards, student mentoring, neighborhood and community programs. He holds a bachelor's degree at Loyola University of Chicago and a master's degree from Northwestern University. Fellow Big Ten alumnus, welcome to the podcast, Tom Bull. How are you today? Thank you. I'm doing well. Thank you very much. What a nice uh, thing to say about me. I appreciate that. I am uh, so excited to reconnect with you. I know our paths would cross all the time when I worked at the University of Oregon. Uh, we got to see each other a lot more, but we've known each other since uh, our days in District 5 and speaking at District 5 conferences. And so it's great to connect with you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, Tom, I gave a little brief glimpse into your career, but maybe you could share a little bit more about your path and and your passion for higher education advancement. Sure, sure. Uh, so like many of us, we got into this role by accident. We didn't know anything about it, right? Uh, maybe we volunteered for alumni services as an undergrad. I was heavily involved as an undergrad in student government, my fraternity, blah, 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 I can go on and on and on. But actually I was focused on getting an HR because I really want to learn about that. So after graduation, after doing some internships, I actually left the university, went to work at a, a, a Rush North Shore Hospital in the HR field, got called back to Loyola about a year later to work in development. I had no idea what a development was, but it was paying more money and I had a neat title. I'm like, all right, I'll do it. And I think looking back on the experience, I'm happy I did it. 
But the challenge, I think, was that people enjoyed the fact when I was at Loyola that I, I could take the lead for projects and move forward with it. But I had no experience in development. And I think that that two years was a real challenge trying to understand what is development? How does it work? And so forth. So that was the start. And then uh, I went back and forth between nonprofit university life and nonprofit outside university. But it was at Northwestern when I fell in love with alumni relations and made a decision. This is what I'm going to do. This is where I'm going to stay. And that was in 1999. And boy, did you ever do it. You moved into a leadership role running your own program at Portland State. Talk a little bit about the program that you built there. Sure. So uh, I took over from a person that was already there. Her name was uh, Pat Squire. She had been there for 20 years. So obviously I was a little apprehensive about taking the role from her. Uh, she was responsible for ex for moving the alumni house there, was physically moved there, and she built up the funds and so forth. But my role was to, was to really extend on or build upon what she had already done. And so once I started looking at it that way, it became much easier to think about how do we engage alumni on behalf of the university? Portland State, I think there are seven schools, as you know, and uh, in Oregon that are state schools. Oregon State, University of Oregon are the two largest in terms of, I think, uh, the reputation and so forth. Portland State is a large of the seven schools. They're one of the largest ones as well. But I think that didn't have the reputation, nor, nor I guess I thought about it as being a young school. So only in the last 10 to 15 years did it really start to pick up as to where it is today. So uh, the program I built there was focused on maybe four areas. It was reaching out to students to engage them now before they leave. It was building a strategic communications plan uh, and then looking at volunteerism in terms of how they come to campus and then volunteerism outside of campus, if that makes sense. So those were the four areas I really focused on in the last several years I was there. Definitely an emerging brand in the state of Oregon, Portland State. I've affectionately called it the PSU, even though I work at an institution that has the same initials. It's great to talk to my counterpart at the PSU. Tom, talk a little bit about when I remember going to conferences and your presentations. It talked about that strategic communications piece that you just touched on. That seemed yeah. like a, a piece, in addition to working with students and volunteers, but a piece that really kind of tapped into your passion for this for this work. Talk a little bit about how alumni associations go about building out that strategic communications piece with limited resources. Yeah, uh, it's a great point. So one of the things I recognized right, right away, at least with Portland State, was that many people that were coming to Portland State either transferred in or they were looking to use it as a way to transfer out. So we weren't a very traditional school. And so I decided to work with the team after we did some research, we did some surveys and research, and we found out that most people that were coming to Portland State really want to focus on their career and professional development. So we rebranded ourselves as, as an organization that complemented our current career and professional services within the university. We were going to be partners, and our focus then was on services and resources that's going to help you continue your professional development, your personal development as well. So with that in mind, that's how we branded ourselves as, as more of, we're here, we're going to have resources for you, and that's going to help you. And so we tapped into, first with the communications, obviously, was looking at an integrated approach. And that meant, to me at least, and the team was looking at social media, so we looked at website, we looked at emails, e-news, and we also started paying attention to what all our partners on campus are doing. In other words, 
if this business school was sending out these messages, how do we incorporate that into a, a bigger message that we can help promote their resources and so forth? So no matter where you were in the university, you start to see resources from all over. I think sometimes the colleges or schools within the university tend to focus on their alumni. And I think that's great. But at the same time, from our perspective as an alumni association, we want to engage the entire resources of the university. So we started piggyback right on those types of things, bring it all together. And, and I guess what I would call it a one-stop shop, come to us, hear all the resources, and then through us, you will navigate out to the other resources that's out there. The last thing I'll say is that I really wanted to promote, at least within our staff, that our job is to engage alumni and bring them back to the university, not necessarily connect them to the alumni association. I think sometimes there's a mixed message. So we're, again, our job was get these alumni to come through us, but our job is to connect them to the university. I think that's an important point. It's a point that I talk about. If you were to do a survey of graduating seniors and ask them what they love most about your institution, the Alumni Association, more, more times than not, doesn't make that list. And so it's about positioning the Alumni Association as a conduit to those things that do make their top 10 list and not necessarily being the connect, being what we get people excited about, right? The way yep. we garner loyalty as an alumni association is by being really good at connecting alumni to what does make their top 10 list. I agree, I agree, absolutely. And I know you and I have talked about that. And I've spoken to other colleagues about that too. It is not about connect them to us. I agree 100%. Let's face it, students and less you have a program out there that's really educating students, even an alumni association, that's not where they make their connection. It's going to be about the university. And we need to stay with that and, and use that to engage them. So, Tom, I think about the institutions that you have been involved with, Northwestern, Loyola, Midwestern, private institutions. And then I think of Pacific Northwest, uh, the institutions that you've worked there, and a public school in the heart of one of the hottest cities in, in the United States right now in terms of just being really progressive, being uh, uh, a little bit eccentric. Talk a little bit about how you got a hold on the culture, right? Because the culture in Portland and the culture of that institution is certainly different than the culture in Chicago and Northwestern, for example. Absolutely. You know, it's funny you bring this up because when I first moved to Seattle in 2007, 2006, 2007, I was a bit confused with how people responded to me. Uh, it's very passive, I think, out here. So people would say things. It's not really what they meant. Uh, so sometimes, for example, people say, hey, we should get together. And I thought, oh, OK, let's get together. Well, really what they were saying is, hi, how you doing? It took a while for me to really understand that. And I think you're right. Chicago, at least, I felt is a little bit more direct than the people out here in the Pacific Northwest. I knew what people were saying to me, but then I was raised there. So I had to really consider that too. Whereas here, a comment is made, I'm not quite sure what people were saying to me. I think also when I told my friends in Chicago about, you know, people are so passive out there. One of my friends asked me, do you think it's because of that you're African-American and people sometimes will have a hard time, you know, Portland and Seattle, and it's just what it is. It's not a bad thing. It's just, it's more white out here. And I thought to myself, well, that could be playing into something. But some of the professional people did make a comment to me out here that I was a little bit more aggressive than they're used to. And I thought that was a little surprising. And I did share that with my friends and they would laugh at me in Chicago. It's like, they think you're aggressive. I'm like, well, 
you know, I think it's just a cultural thing and, and how people respond out here. So, and then you mentioned also about private universities versus public. So I've never worked in a public university. So when this opportunity came up, I decided I have to jump on this. I have to learn how a public system works. And I'll tell you, I was blown away by it because I think in the private universities, in my opinion, the, the things I experienced is that you move quicker, you move uh, directly, you make decisions quicker. Where in the public system, you had to slow it down a bit, more people had to be involved. Uh, and so, and then understanding how the public system works in terms of how you spend money, uh, all that was about education. So an example would be, I took an alum out once for drinks. Well, you really can't do that. And I didn't understand why. And someone goes, well, you know, you're using, you're spending taxpayers' money on this. And it was like, oh, it was like a different light. Whereas private universities, that's private funding you're using. So it's a little bit different. So it took some time in education to understand how that works. Uh, I made it through, of course. Uh, and I think on me, it took time for me to slow down and speak to people like yourself and other colleagues in the public system or colleagues that were getting into the public system and just listen to their experience and get some direction and even get mentored by uh, people who've been in, the, in this field longer than I have in terms of public systems. So it was a learning experience. And I think no matter which side you go on, public or um, or the private um, university system, and you're making a switch, you're still going to take that time to be educated on how it works. You know, you alluded to this a little bit, and, and I hope it's uh, an area that maybe I could pick away at if you're comfortable going there. But uh, as an, as an African-American man and as a, as a leader in higher education, I'm wondering if you might share your experience with us on, on how that has been to navigate. You talked about some, you talked about some subtle, what people say isn't necessarily what they mean, but I would imagine that there are other examples from your experience that are probably different than my experience. And I think it's important for us to talk about things like that. Sure. You know, for a while, before the protesting, everything like that, I was much more careful in what I say, how I do, you know, what I was saying, how I was doing things. I think I was always concerned that I didn't want to come off a certain way. I, I can't even put, explain what I mean by that, but I'll give you examples. Like, for example, uh, one of the things I was cautious about doing is taking vacation. So in other words, I took vacation around holidays, around business travel, and around weekends. I never took just this long span of vacation. And because I came to realize I was nervous about seeing being seen as someone who didn't do my work, and I realized that played a lot into my career for years. There are certain things I just didn't do because I was nervous about what it may make me look like. And so after the protests and reading articles after articles about what other African-Americans, especially African-American males were experiencing, I came to realize like, oh my gosh, there are a number of things I have been doing that maybe I, don't, I knew I was doing, but I incorporated it in my life so much that I forgot I was doing it. So for example, if I was walking down the street and I saw a, a woman that was coming towards me that's white, I would automatically cross the street. Partly that was because I would see people clutching their purses or people across the street. So think about that for a second. I incorporate yeah. that into life because of what I was feeling and, and my experience. And so, and I realized I was incorporating other things into my life. So as I move forward, I've decided I need to change what I'm doing and not do those types, you know, pay attention. Why, why am I doing this? Is it because 
I feel, in, you know, is it because I feel a little intimidated because I'm African-American or was it that I wanted to be less intimidating? And I think I wanted to be less intimidating. Walking down the street with uh, Starbucks in my hand, for example, it's less intimidating, you know. And I read articles after articles about African-American males that were walking with their daughters or walking with their dogs or something because for them, it was less intimidating. And I realized I incorporate those, incorporated those things into my life too. So I'm going to change that habit as I move forward uh, to make sure I'm not doing that, but also just to be aware of it and ask myself, why am I doing this? And how then do I help my colleagues, not, not change their lives or anything, but how do I bring that awareness that we all may be doing things like that for different reasons? And, and how do I bring that awareness? How do you bring that awareness to me, right? I'm, I'm white. I'm uh, a leader in, in higher education. What are there, what could I be doing to be uh, a better ally, to be um, maybe more forward in my anti-racism? Or maybe in, in your examples, what you might have wished others around you might have done? I think that looking back at my experience, especially in the last 10 years, what I've noticed that people are very uncomfortable about this conversation. And I feel like that's where it needs to start. It needs to start. It may be uncomfortable, but that's where it's going to start. The more we talk about it, the more it's going to get out there, the more we're going to see things. And those are the, those are the things we need to start doing. But I think what I saw in the last 10 years at PSU, uh, I'm being very honest here, is that there was an avoidance of it. Less, we're not going to talk about it. There's an avoidance of it. I, one organizations, I won't uh, even mention the organization name, but we were doing a training on diversity and so forth. And the head of our organization chose that day not to even show up. I would find out later that someone in his family was sick, but I thought to myself, wait a minute, that may be true, but maybe we could have you know, rescheduled to make sure that person could be, be a part of it. But we never rescheduled. And I came to realize that it was so uncomfortable for this person that they decided they did not want to be a part of it. And I think that's that's the biggest challenge is that we've got to be uncomfortable. We've got to start talking about it. We've got to recognize that there are some issues and concerns out there and fears out there, real fear. So we we got to start. And I think that's level one. We've got to start talking about it. Yeah, I think a, a big piece of leadership and you know this, but a big piece of leadership is just showing up. Yep. Right. I mean, your yep. your presence in the room elevates the importance of that topic. Right. And and even if you're not comfortable with the conversation, uh, even if it's showing that level of vulnerability, I think speaks volumes that that these are important conversations and I'm I'm here to have them and I'm here to learn alongside my colleagues. I think that's really important. Exactly right. Exactly right. During the protest, a number of my friends called me uh, who are white males and they were asking me. They were saying to me, Tom, I don't know what to do. Uh, I don't even know what questions to ask. And I don't know how to move forward. And you know what? I thought, I said to them, that's okay, because that's authentic, it's honest, and we're having a conversation about it. And believe me when I say I'm learning too. So it's not that anyone's in the boat by themselves. We're all in it together. We're learning about how do we do it the right way? How do we do it in a way that people are going to open their minds and their hearts and their ears and listen to what we're saying? Because again, I can be educated myself. As I said earlier, there were some things I was learning about myself that I knew I was doing in the beginning, but I kind of forgot I was doing these things. So we can all take the time to discuss these types of issues. Absolutely. So when you think of what's going on in the world from a social justice perspective, from COVID-19, 
the rising cost of higher education, the increased debt of our students that they're what they're graduating with. What are some of the challenges that you see us in higher education advancement facing? Yeah, you know, I'm calling this the year of enlightenment. The facts are, I think we always knew that the cost of education was rising. We saw issues of brutality with the police officers. We saw issues of biasness and how we were hiring people, blah, blah, blah. Those things were already there, but I think now we are forced to talk about it and acknowledge it. So I think that's something that's been new and I'm hopefully this, this enlightenment will stay with us and we will continue to talk about it. Some of the things I'm still seeing, I feel a little bit, uh, and, and hiring practices, for example, uh, I worked with some people in HR, and one of the things we had started talking about was, do we remove names from resumes? But uh, to, in order to hire people, right, we should even consider dropping how people are being, you know how sometimes our organizations will, uh, you can always recommend people, and sometimes you get a credit or you, something like that. We're thinking about, we were thinking about even dropping that because all we're doing is hiring friends of friends. Uh, that becomes an issue because I think the perspective of, of, of diversity, even diversity in thinking is being lost. I see a huge gap right now in how we're hiring people. We're hiring colleagues. We're stealing them from other schools. Well, what happened right. to the younger folks? So there's a huge gap between senior level people and young people where that middle gap is widening, widening because we're not training from within. So I think we have some challenges that we have to look at even, oh, oh, I, I should mention also, this was suggested to me by the provost. It was amazing. She said that even we should drop the names of the schools they're coming from, because if it's about the skill sets first, we don't need to see the schools they're coming from. We don't even need to see where they graduated from. We start with the skill sets first. If they make it through that level, then they go to the next level. We can open up the rest of the stuff. And I thought that was an eye opener for me because I said to myself, you know what? I can see myself doing that. I can actually see myself hiring someone from Harvard versus, I don't know, some other school because it's not Harvard or Yale or Northwestern. And I promised myself as I move forward, I'm going to really pay attention to that. But again, those are something, the changes I think we need to start to incorporate. Yeah, it's going to take more time. We know that. But if we're willing to spend the time to train people that are coming into the field that may not even have direct experience, but are the skills transferable? Again, we start to defeat the type of things that we're seeing in terms of diversity if we start looking at the bigger picture. Uh, you mentioned right. also earlier about how we got into the field. I think back in our days, I got into the field in 1995, and it was like, oh, you know, young person get in, blah, blah, blah. I'm not seeing that anymore. I'm not seeing people directly getting in that way. And they're staying much longer in that assistant role, assistant director role, you know, moving up. I think that I'm also seeing some young people risk averse. So I'm wondering what's happening there. What are we not teaching? You touched on some important things. The one that thing that it reminded me too, and this one might resonate with you. When we ask somebody or we make it a requirement to have a driver's license, I think is, is an interesting requirement too, because you're eliminating people who have vision impairments or people who may be, who may be deaf and have uh, other kind of abilities, right? You may be eliminating anyone who grew up in New York City or Chicago because you don't need a car to get around in those cities. That's right. That's a great point. You know what, Paul? I never thought about that, but that is a great point and it emphasizes what we're talking about. If we put these qualifications in, it doesn't really make sense for us to put in. Uh, I understand why at the, you know, you have to drive to meet your donors, but still with the technology right. we have now with Uber, we can get around. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, those, those folks navigate the world in a way that they have 
adjusted to navigating the world, we shouldn't be telling them you have to do it by car, right? Yep. Yep. True. True. Yep. Yep. Tom, it's so good to catch up with you. It's so good to to hear your voice. On Alumni Trending, on our podcast, we give our guests the final word. And I want to give you that opportunity to talk a little bit about that. Where do you see us going as a profession? What are you most excited about in terms of the work that we're doing? You know, I thought about this question as we're thinking about it, but I've been thinking about some things over the years as we've seen the way alumni are engaging with their alumni associations. You are a membership organization, I know that, uh, but I know our membership was dying for several years and we made a decision in 2011, 2012 to just to, to end it. We didn't see young, newer grads joining membership or models anymore. So I've been wondering about what is that going to look like in the future? Younger people, even we changed the way we were doing our clubs. We dropped the name clubs and we changed it to alumni networks because we saw in our research again, our young people did not want to join what they saw as a structure that existed 40 years ago. Now, now like a school like Northwestern, the club system is doing strong. And it's probably because they've had it in place for years, probably like Penn State, they've had it in place for years. So the students are indoctrinated and into that. Uh, but so looking at those types of things, thinking about traditional program, especially now, I think about reunions. What is that going to look like after we get through this? What are these alumni clubs going to look like after we get through this? Already we saw a change happening where people are looking back. I, I want to say in 2008, when we had our crash, uh, many alums turned back to their schools and said, hey, I need help in career and professional services. A lot of schools weren't ready for it. And so when I saw the prediction of this coming through, I'm like, we've got to be ready. And guess what? A lot of schools weren't ready for it. How, how can we not be ready when, when alums, when you go to school to get a better career, to, to, to change who you are, your life, your opportunities, and then when these students or these alums come back, and they're like, well, we don't have a lot of services out there. How can we not be ready for that? So I'm hoping, thinking that schools are thinking about that, that we have to always be prepared. And we, in fact, we should always be there to help these alums as they navigate whatever their, their plans look like in the future. It could be professional career services. It could be personal services. It could be something that's going to help them. And I'm hoping that's where the trends are going to lead. I'm hoping we learn a lot during this year of enlightenment, and it's not going to just be a year, but it's going to be more than that. You mentioned earlier about the cost of education. We know it's been problems for years. And right now, a lot of students are saying, I don't know if I can afford to go to school, especially now. Why, do, why am I paying so much money to go to a school where we may not physically be on campus anymore? I think this is the time that we start to look at this and go, why does it cost so much to go to school? So I go to school, like society told me to, my mom told me to do it. I take up loans. I graduate. I have a good job. And then how long am I paying for these loans? As an undergrad, I didn't think about it because I wanted to get through. I wanted the degree. But now it's been 10 years. I'm still paying for these loans. So I'm thinking right. those are the things we need to start looking at. Tom, thank you so much for being a guest on the Alumni Trending Podcast today. Thank you so much, Paul. Really enjoyed this, just connecting to you, connecting to this field, and being so honest and authentic about what we're talking about. And hopefully, uh, as we move forward, some changes, some positive changes will come, mostly in terms of just educating ourselves and our colleagues on, on how we need to move forward. So thank you so much for this opportunity.
I'm John Fudo, Vice Chancellor for University Advancement at UMass Lowell, and I'm staying on trend by listening to the Alumni Trending Podcast. There you go, trendsetters, another episode of Alumni Trending. If you are enjoying the Alumni Trending Podcast, make sure you go out to iTunes or your podcast app of choice and give us a rating and drop us a review. We'd also love to hear from you. Drop me an email at paul.clifford at alumnitrending.com. Until next time, thanks for tuning in and keep trending.